have you noticed? All scripture is inspired by God. But some passages are more inspiring than others. Perhaps no verse is more encouraging than 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. This uplifting verse frequently appears on Christian greeting cards and stationery, because it's guaranteed to infuse the recipient with hope and gratitude. I'll never forget the first time I received it. I was a sophomore at Cedarville College. The most difficult part about being a single college guy is the ask. How do you know if she's really into you? What if you ask her out and she turns you down? Well, luckily, the Christian women at Christian colleges have devised a spiritual way to let young guys know when they like them. They use the Bible. If they like you a little, they might email you a verse of scripture to brighten your day. If they like you a lot... They'll write it out longhand and send it through intercampus mail. The only verses you don't want, obviously, are the imprecatory psalms. Depart from me, ye wicked man. She's probably not interested. I also wouldn't get too excited over any unsigned variations on Ruth 116. You know, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, where you die, I will die. That one sounds like a stalker. (laughs) You're going to want to turn that over to campus security. Well, it was apologetics class my sophomore year, and I was kind of interested in the red-haired girl up front, but she was older than me, a lot classier than me. She looked like the kind that might date a basketball player, not a guy that hung out at the library. Well, imagine my surprise. On one, one glorious day, I go to my mailbox, And there on scented paper and purple ink were the words, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. What an encouragement. I imagined myself marching smartly behind Jesus with my sword outstretched, slaying exams and tuition bills and parking fines and lung launch lines. Uh, That note, I'll never forget it, because I didn't get many of them. And after one date, she stopped writing them. Uh, She moved on to the basketball team. Uh, Pastor Mark was... One year behind, uh, four years behind me at Cedarville. And uh, when he was there, he received most of Paul's epistles and the book of John. <laughs> In fact, Sarah finally wised up and she sent him a, a passage from the Song of Solomon. <laughs> Game over. In fact, you should ask Mark to show you his Rogop Bible. He has collected all the verses he ever received as a college student and arranged them in canonical order. I'm not saying it's a really big book, but there's enough there to lead someone to Christ and disciple them for a while. Uh, Joe Bartimus has done the same thing, collected all the verses he's ever received and put them in order. You may have heard of that one. It's the wordless Bible. That's the one he didn't like, yeah. Uh, Thanks be to God, who leads us in triumph in Christ. I think that verse is speaking of a more sober truth than I realized back in college. Paul is describing a triumphal procession where the Roman Senate would march to the streets of Rome with their victorious general. They would go up to the top of the Capitoline Hill where they would offer sacrifices to the god Jupiter. Our question this morning is, where in that parade does Paul see himself? 
as one of Christ's victorious soldiers just returning from the war or someplace else? We find a clue in the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. If you have your Bibles with you, meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4. This first letter to the Corinthians is Paul's desperate attempt to try to restore order to them. Many of them were trying to move up in the church and by extension in the city of Corinth. And since the easiest way up is to put others down, they were comparing themselves with each other. In verse 7, Paul tells them to cut it out. He says, who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you didn't? And then beginning in verse 8, Paul contrasts his own spiritual life with their attempts at being important. Notice the sarcasm that drips from Paul's voice as he tries to impress upon them the futility of trying to become a significant person by moving up in the church. Verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. (laughs) How I wish that you really had become kings, so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ. But you, you are so wise in Christ. We are weak. You are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed... We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. In verse 9 there, Paul says, It seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die. Now, we're not sure if this is the exact same parade Paul has in mind in 2 Corinthians 2, but either way, I think we see the bent of Paul's mind. In this triumphal procession, Paul says, I'm not necessarily one of Christ's victorious soldiers. I'm one of his prisoners, someone who's condemned to die for Christ. In fact, look at verse 13, how this ends. He says, up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. The Greek roots for scum and refuse are the same, and they mean that which is removed as a result of cleansing. You ever take a damp rag and wipe out the inside of a garbage can or a toilet bowl? The stuff that sticks in your rag, the stuff that makes you gag, Paul says, that's me. Now, why was Paul scum? It wasn't because of his person. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul says, if anyone has reason to be self-confident, it's me. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Jew's Jew. You want to talk about keeping the law? I was a Pharisee. You want to talk about zeal? I persecuted the church. Legalistic legalistic righteousness? Faultless. It wasn't Paul's person. It wasn't the man that made him scum. It was his message. Turn over one page to 1 Corinthians 1, the passage that Joe just read. 
that speaks to the foolishness of our gospel message. Verse 22, Paul says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks are looking for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles. Let's take each one of those, uh, one at a time. Paul says, our gospel, our message of Christ crucified, that's a stumbling block to Jewish people. Now, that's actually a pretty weak translation in my NIV. The Greek word there is scandalon. If you remember Michael Card, who was here last year, he's got a CD called Scandalon. It means what it sounds like, scandal. The cross was not merely a stumbling block. It wasn't something a Jewish person tripped over, picked themselves up, brushed themselves off, and just kept walking. No, far worse than that. The cross was a scandal to them. It made the blood rise to their face. Jews said that Yahweh, the God who dwells in unapproachable light, the God who is so transcendent, we don't even try to say his name for fear we'll mispronounce it and commit some great heresy, blasphemy. Paul, you're telling me that that God had a son? He became human? He became physical? That's blasphemy. Even worse, you say this son was crucified? He was he hung on a tree? Double blasphemy. The Jews had a verse for this. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23 says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So Paul, if what you're telling us is true, all you're telling us is not that Jesus Christ is this favored son of God. It means Jesus Christ was cursed by God. And Paul says exactly right. Galatians 3.13 Jesus Christ was cursed by God. He bore our curse in our place. He absorbed all of the Father's wrath against sin so we could go free. And the Jews said, blasphemy. If what you're saying is true at all, and our Bible supports it, Jesus Christ is the worst kind of devil. Is it any wonder that everywhere Paul goes in the book of Acts, a band of Jews with stones in their pockets are trucking close behind. You see, Paul was stuck with a message which struck at the heart of everything a Jewish person held dear. In their eyes, he really was the scum of the earth. Paul says, our message, not winning many friends among the Greeks either. He says, our message is foolishness to them. The Greek word there is moroi. It's where we get our word moron from. It's just downright moronic to the Greek mind. We talked about this this weekend. The Greeks thought that true wisdom lay in the heavens, in the eternal forms, the ideal rational principles, the eternal wisdom, eternal rational principles that were up there in the heavens. Nothing down here lasts. Nothing down here is permanent. Everything down here is, it leaves, it comes and goes. So nothing down here is really important. Well, think of it. The Christian faith is not about the eternal rational principles. We do have principles. Proverbs is full of them. But at heart, the Christian faith is not about that. It's about something that has happened in time and space. Our faith is a historical faith. And that means it wasn't necessary. There's one thing which is true of everything which happens in time and space. It's not necessary. It's, it doesn't have to be that way. God didn't have to create the world. He chose to. When we rebelled and rejected him, he didn't have to redeem us. He didn't have to send his son to save us. He chose to. So 
Because the Christian faith is a historical faith, it's about what Jesus Christ, a particular person, has done in a particular way in this world, you can't ever figure it out. If you were locked in a room thinking deep thoughts for a long time, you would never discover the gospel. Because it's not about eternal, rational principles. It's about what has happened in time and space. And the Greeks said, well, that's, that's stupid. <laughs> this, this down here, this doesn't matter. Nothing here lasts. Tr- true wisdom is up there. So when Paul says, no, the word, the logos, true wisdom is found in a person, Jesus, they said, that's stupid. But it gets worse. Jesus is not just a particular person. He was crucified. That's doubly dumb. Paul, sounds like your particular is a loser. How can he be the key to unlocking the wisdom of the world? But it gets worse. Not only was Jesus crucified, he rose again. We mentioned this weekend that the Greeks thought this material world, because it doesn't last, it's not important, it's a prison for your soul. Your soul is the eternal part of you. And so it's bad enough that Jesus was killed. He could be taken out that easily. But what kind of stupid ninny god would go back for his body? That's why in Acts 17, Paul's in Athens, the home of Greek philosophy. And they listen to the gospel until he gets to the part of the resurrection. Then they say, this is just the dumbest thing we've ever heard. You're a moron. And they laughed him off the stage. So Paul says, our gospel of Christ crucified, it's a scandal to Jews. It's moronic to Greeks. And what he doesn't tell us here, but we know it's true from church history, it was also dangerous to the Romans. You know, sometimes we unfairly criticize the Roman people and their emperors. We talk as if um, the Roman emperor unfairly persecuted the church and treated Christians really badly, bored with routine palace life, nothing going on, got down to the Colosseum, watched the Christians play the lions. Which, if it had happened last year, I think we could have taken them. <laughs> um, I heard uh, Paul Harvey say once that... Um, there's this restaurant in La Jolla, California, serving lion meat. And there were protesters outside picketing how awful this was. And Paul said, Christians eating lions? What's wrong with that? It's payback time. <laughs> but that misrepresents the Romans. The Romans were extremely nice people. Now, sure, they had to flex some muscle and exert some power because they had conquered much of the Western world. But because they had done that, they had all these different people groups with all these different nationalities and languages and religions and customs, and they had to keep them all happy. And one way the Romans did that was they didn't worship just one god, they worshipped all the gods. What's the oldest still-standing structure in Rome today? That building with the vaulted ceiling and the hole in the center of the ceiling? The Pantheon. The Pantheon means all the gods. So the Romans, when they conquered a people, thereby proving that their god was superior to the people's gods they just conquered, still, out of deference, they would build a temple for that god in Rome. So no matter who you were, when you went to your capital city, you could find your temple and worship your god. And everyone was okay with this, except the Jewish people, who kept saying, no, Yahweh is the only god. But Rome kept them confined to Palestine. They were okay there. But then this new religion began from within Judaism. And it also said that there's only one God, and we have him. And this Christian faith went international. It it wouldn't be content to stay within the borders of Israel. Now put yourself in the emperor's sandals. What do you do with people like this? 
who keep saying, we have the only God. That God is an idol. That temple is false. Wrong, wrong. Only Jesus is the only God. If you let these people keep talking, they're going to offend people. They're going to tick them off. They're going to tear apart the fat, fragile fabric of your empire. If you're the emperor, the nice, even though you're the nicest man, you persecute them. You don't want to. You beg them to shut up. You say, can't we all just get along? But they wouldn't be quiet. The Christians brought the persecution upon themselves. You know, what goes around comes around. And have you noticed? We're living in the same kind of world that Paul lived in. America is very much like the early Roman Empire. We have a multicultural, multilingual, very diverse population, and I love that. What a treat. I, I love that I can go for Thai food or Indian food or dim sum. If you don't know what dim sum is, you have not lived. Uh, I love trying different cultures. I like taking a run at their language. I, 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 I love going to the ATM and being asked Spanish or English. I think that's neat to live in a culture where there's diversity. But have you noticed? There's one thing you can't say today. What Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You can't say Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no under name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Remember, it was about a month ago when Britt Hume spoke up and said, you know what Tiger Wood needs? Tiger Wood needs Jesus. Remember the firestorm that erupted? What an idiot. What a moron. How dangerous is that? Can't you respect another man's religion? How dare you? And this is even impacting now Christian circles. Uh, just last year, I was on campus at a Christian evangelical college, and I asked, do you have to believe in Jesus to be saved, or do all good people go to heaven? And the professors at this Christian college said, no, you don't have to believe in Jesus. There was a, I asked the dean of a faculty of an evangelical seminary in a public forum, do you think you have to believe in Jesus to be saved? He said he wasn't sure. Um, they did a survey in 2008. They found that Evangelical Christians, like most of us in this room, the best survey that put the best face on us said 20% of us think that other religions can save you if you believe in them. So the culture believes this, and now it's impacting the church. Let me just show you why Scripture teaches you do have to believe in Jesus to be saved. Look at John chapter 3. In John chapter 3... Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And Nicodemus is the prototypical good Jewish man. If you read books on this subject, they always talk about God would not send a good Jewish person to hell just because they didn't believe in Jesus. Well, Nicodemus is that good Jewish man. He will defend Jesus in the Sanhedrin. He will later risk his life to bury Jesus. And yet notice when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus does not tell Nicodemus, Thank you for coming. Uh, you're on the path. The fact that you are coming towards me is a great sign. Thank you for letting me speak into your journey. Jesus doesn't say that. In verse 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus said, Nicodemus, as good as you are, you have to have a radical change. You have to be born again. 
And Nicodemus got the point, because in verse 4 he says, how, how can a man be born? How is it even possible? What are you talking about? And Jesus answered in verse 5, this is a job that requires the Holy Spirit. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus asked, how can this be? How does the Spirit do that? And Jesus answered in verse 16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's the sequence. Jesus told Nicodemus, You're a sinner. As good as you are, because you're a sinner, you need to have this radical rebirth. You have to be born again. Nicodemus asked, well, how does that happen? Jesus said, well, only the Spirit can do that. That's a, that's a supernatural work of God. Well, how does the Spirit do that? The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, uses truth. You have to believe in Jesus. You have to know the truth about Jesus and put all your weight, put all your trust, go all in, push all your chips in the center of the table, commit whole hog for Jesus. But to do that, you have to know about him first. Martin Luther said that the Holy Spirit doesn't just zap people from nowhere. People walking down the street, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved, like Oprah Winfrey giving out uh, car keys. The Holy Spirit doesn't just zap people from nowhere. The Holy Spirit uses truth. As the word of God is read or proclaimed, Luther says the Holy Spirit's working on the inside to change a person's heart. That's why in Romans 10, verse 13, Paul says, Anyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call unless they believe? And how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless there's a preacher that goes to them and tells them the good news? How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news? So, to be saved, you have to know about Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit uses truth to give you new birth. Now here's the catch. We have to admit that we're sinners. That's not an easy thing to do. Right? We don't even like, as a culture, to admit that people are born in sin. We talk as if children, look how cute they are, look how cuddly. They're not sinners. They're, they're, they're good. Well, have you ever worked in a nursery? <laughs> right? if, this is not a popular teaching, but every parent knows my child is born a sinner. I didn't teach my kids to be like they are. They got it from their mom. Right? We, we are sinners. We are rebels. Now, sin doesn't mean that you're of, of no worth. In fact, your sin only matters because you matter. If you weren't valuable, if you didn't matter at all, your sin wouldn't count for much. Right? You, no one ever lectured a worm. Bad worm, bad worm, stay on my hook. It's a worm. It's supposed to, you, who cares what it does? But if you're made in the image of God, you have great value. You have great worth. And that's why your sin matters, because you do. That's why Christ died on the cross to absorb the wrath of the Father in our place, so you could go free. But here's the catch. We have to admit that we're sinners, and that's not easy to do. Just last week, I was talking to a group, and I was trying to be funny, but it felt kind of maybe mean. And the next day, it just bothered me. I said, wow, that, that probably came off wrong. And for the whole day, I was trying to excuse myself. Well, you know, those things happen. You're not really like that. And finally, after wrestling with it, I said, you know what? Just say it. You're a sinner. And it's almost like this weight came off my shoulders. It, 
okay, yeah. I, what, of course, I'm a sinner. I'm proud. I, I, I say mean things because I'm a sinner. And it's liberating to admit that because if you don't admit you're a sinner, Jesus Christ can't help you. Right? What the, the angel told Jesus, name, told Joseph, name your son Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus said, I am like a doctor. I've not come to help the healthy. I've come for the sick to seek and save those who are lost. So unless we admit what everyone knows already, that we're sinners, we can't be helped. And here's, here's how bad we really are. Isaiah 64, 6 says, our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. If you and I were honest with ourselves, we'd have to admit even our best deeds, even our, our most shining moments are flawed and shot through with sin. Right? So let's say in this recession, I anonymously give a big chunk of money to one of my students. That's a great thing to do. But as I'm doing it, part of me is thinking, I really hope somehow they find out it was me. (laughs) Or better yet, I think, you know what? I don't even care. And then I'm thinking, yeah, you don't even care. And I think, whoa, okay, that was a little arrogant. That was a little bit proud. Maybe you should repent of that. And so I bow my head and I say, God, I'm sorry. You know, I, I just did this wonderful thing. I just gave a lot of money to someone anonymously, but it was a little bit wrong because I was proud that I didn't care that they thought it was me. And even as I'm praying, I'm thinking, good catch. Whoa. You are so close to Jesus. I mean, you did a wonderful thing. And it was only the tiniest wrong, and you caught it. Right, so I have to repent of my repentance. i got to confess my confession. right? Now, this, this doesn't mean we give up and don't try. We can make progress, right? When God says, well done, good and faithful servant, he doesn't mean you nailed it, perfect ten, even I couldn't do it better. What he means is, you kept making progress. You, you did better, Right? Calvin says God is like an indulgent father with us. Right? If, if, you, if you're a father, I, mean, I love seeing Mark with his little girl because it reminds me of my little girl. And I mean, My little girl gives me a picture and says, Here, Daddy, you rock. She says, You rock. And here's, here's your picture. I don't say, Come on, honey. That doesn't even look at all like me. Right? I've got legs. My hair's not purple. No, I say, Yeah, I rock. And I, I put it on the refrigerator and I give her a big hug. and say, That's awesome. It's not a perfect, it's a pretty pathetic picture, actually. But I love that she did that. Now, but I want her to keep making progress when she's 25 and I'm still getting this, you rock, Eddie, and like, no, come on. Buy me a card. This is insulting. So we can make progress in the Christian life, and we should. But just know, we never get to the place where we can say, I've arrived. I nailed it. Perfect. And it's a liberating thought to just admit, I'm a sinner. Right? We, what we readily see as sin in someone else, don't we excuse in ourselves? So if I see you lusting after someone, I think, yeah, that's wrong. I can't believe you. But if I take a second glance, I think, well, that was, that's a one-time thing. I'm not really like that. Or if I catch you twisting the truth to put, your, spin it in the, put yourself in the most favorable light, I get angry. I think, you're lying to me. You know what you're doing? But when I do that, eh, that's a one-time thing. I'm not really like that. 
Or if you say something mean to me, I, I'm right back at you. But when I, well, that's not really me. That just slipped out. I'm not really like that. Don't we often let ourselves off the hook? Here's the problem. If you let yourself off the hook, you can't be saved. Jesus cannot help you. Now, today, a lot of us have real, true problems. Some of you have disease. Some of you are looking for jobs, have problems in home. Real problems, and I don't want to minimize those at all. We mentioned over the weekend that all the problems really arise from the fall. So I'm not saying there's sin in your life, but sin is the root of every problem that we have. And also, let me say that our most fundamental problem, the reason why Jesus came, was because of our sin. And if you realize, and will admit, I'm a sinner, then and only then can Jesus save you. But if you believe that, and if you say that, that Jesus is the only Savior, you will look unpatriotic, even un-American. Right? You can't run for president today if you believe Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Um, George W. Bush, I saw him on, on the Today Show a few years ago when he was president over in the Middle East. He had visited a holy site with a Muslim leader, and they asked him about the other religion. He said, well, we all pray to the same God. I mean, he had to say, what if he, what if he had said, well, I don't think he's even accepted by God. I think he's going to hell because he's a Muslim. Can you imagine the American president saying something like that? Uh, Mike Huckabee, when he was running for president, who I think probably believes that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, when he was asked, so are you telling us that only Baptists go to heaven? Mike had to make a joke out of it. No, uh, it's worse than that. I actually think there are some Baptists who won't make it. He had to make a joke. Because if Mike actually said what he thought, what I believe I think is in his heart, it would have been over right then. Remember after 9-11, uh, the West Wing TV show, they did a special 9-11 episode, and it ended with the Rob Lowe character saying, you know how we don't let the terrorists win? By accepting every point of view. Which means, if you think you're right, if you think you have the truth, well, whose side are you on? You sound like the Taliban. You sound like a terrorist. The American way is to live and let live. And I get it. I completely understand that. But I can't help the fact that I'm stuck with Paul's message. And I'm living in Paul's kind of world. And sometimes it bothers me. I ask, how come Paul was beaten and mistreated so shamefully in 1 Corinthians 4? And how come things are going so well for me? Not that we want to be arrogant and be jerks and bring persecution upon ourselves needlessly, but when's the last time that we explained the gospel as kindly and as gently and as compassionately as we could? And yet, because of the implications, people said, you're a moron. You offend me. You sound like the Taliban. Uh, crazy fundamentalist. When's the last time we were considered the scum of the earth? Now, it's not entirely hopeless. Uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men so they may see your right doctrine, no, so they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 1 Peter 2, verse 12, Peter says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
we can do many good deeds in the community, and, and you're already doing them. And the, the, the campaign you're in right now is to help support that. Just know that even then, you will still have to take your lumps. If you say humbly, gently, and kindly, Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. By implication, the other ways are false. Here's the problem with pluralism. Here's the problem with saying other ways are equally okay. You just said Jesus isn't necessary. If you say other ways are are possible routes to God, then Jesus, the particular son of the Father, who came to this world and lived and died and rose again, all of that isn't actually necessary. So if you love Jesus, and you believe Jesus is absolutely necessary, what who he is and what he did is completely necessary for your salvation, because you admit you're a sinner, then you have to be willing to be the scum of the earth, even among Christians. And not long ago, I attended a society of Christian philosophers, a group of Christian philosophers. And one of the papers was a, a man whose paper was entitled, Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. I thought, well, this is a slam dunk. Be a break from all the other difficult papers. But I was amazed when he was done at the questions the other Christian philosophers raised to him. One of them said, what about Muslims? Are you telling us that they're not okay with God? Another said, what about Mother Teresa? I heard that she gives money for Buddhists to build their temples or she conducts Hindu funerals. Are you saying she's wrong? And you could see the derision in their eyes and their voices. Moron. Idiot. Are you serious? And I watched in that group of Christian philosophers as that bold professor took his place in Christ's triumphal procession, not as one of the soldiers coming home from victory, but as a prisoner of the Lord, someone who was captured by God, who was prepared to die with and for Jesus Christ. How about you? Jesus is still looking for more prisoners. Thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph. Father, we thank you for your great salvation. We gladly admit that we're sinners. We thank you for your son who came and bore your wrath so we could spend forever with you, your son, on this new earth. Give us boldness, we pray, and humility and kindness and gentleness to speak the truth in love. And then when we are mistreated, when we are unfairly maligned, may we be glad that you counted us worthy to suffer for your son. We love him, and we want to give our lives to him. Amen.